0: Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Jason Silverman. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta. And today I'm joined from Cincinnati Children's uh, by my co-host, Dr. Tamara Hajat. Hey, Tamara. Hey,
1: Jason. <laughs> hey, Jason.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? Good, good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So uh, this episode, uh, you know, kind of a little bit behind the scenes here, we're, we're actually recording this before the new year, uh, just to make sure it's all all set in time for its release. But by the time this episode comes out, it is going to be firmly into 2022.
1: Look at, look at us living in the future. I know, exactly
0: exactly <laughs> we're we are our own little time travelers here. Uh I don't know uh you, did you know that you can travel through time just simply by recording things in advance? That's a, it's amazing. Look at us. So I was thinking about, you know, like hopes for 2022 because you know not to pile on we've we've spent enough time, you know, commiserating about the dumpster fires that were 2020 and 2021 in a lot of ways, but, um, you know, there, there's still some reasons for optimism and hope and things to be looking forward to in 2022. What, what's something that you're, uh, looking forward to or hoping for in 2022 tomorrow?
1: I am hoping for, (laughs) I'm hoping to buy a new microphone. (laughs) (laughs)
0: So <laughs> that's an so achievable have- goal, Tamara. <laughs> I I I have faith that if you put your mind to it, you will be able to to make that happen.
1: Well, I did buy a good microphone, but then it just stopped working for some reason and uh now I just have a fear of buying a new microphone.
0: I think that, <laughs> that- was just bad luck because you <laughs> you had the you got the same microphone that I have, right? That's
1: true. That's, true. That's uh, true.
0: So um I don't want to jinx myself, but I, I think you just got a limit. Right.
1: right, 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 right. So we'll see. I mean my brother is always the kind that if he uh buys something new technology, it just stops working within two weeks. So I don't know if I'm getting his his, um, technology failing stuff.
0: Oh no. So you've got like the black cloud of technology (laughs) purchasing?
1: Uh, Yes. Well, I don't usually, but maybe my brother is passing it on to me. So I'll see.
0: Well, I, like I said, I I have faith that you can make that happen. I'm uh, so so listeners uh, listen out on a future episode of Bell Sounds for a very uh, uh, clear, clear and uh, melodic sounding Tamara, and yeah. then you'll know that she's made her <laughs> wish come true.
1: That's true. How about you, Jason?
0: <laughs> um. So well, very early on in uh, the year is actually my uh, our tenth wedding anniversary oh, wow. and
1: congratulations. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And and so while we were really hoping to you know maybe have a big trip uh for f- to celebrate that uh that event um it probably isn't going to happen at least not close to the actual date but I'm hoping that um so when we when we first got married we had a winter wedding. So we mm-hmm. got married at the end of January and when we uh, when we got married we just the timing didn't work to go on a honeymoon right away. And so we did like a little mini moon where we got away for a few days to to the mountains. And uh, it really, it was great. And then later in the summer, we went to Hawaii for our oh, honeymoon. Wow. And so we're sort of maybe on track to do something similar in that uh, right around, actually on our anniversary, we are heading to the mountains locally for a little bit of a mini moon uh unfortunately the difference is with kids in tow this time <laughs> um and uh maybe what we're looking forward to is uh by the summertime or by later in the year being able to maybe go back and revisit hawaii for that's awesome uh, a 10th anniversary trip
1: are you camping in the mountains
0: no no we're we're it, it's we're not hardcore campers at the okay. best of times, and minus thirty Celsius is not exactly camping weather for for us. So right, no, especially with
1: kids too. Yeah. Yeah. So we're
0: we're no we're staying in uh, a really nice place in uh, in Jasper, uh, Alberta, oh, which is a beautiful awesome. beautiful place. If uh, anyone wants to go to a really unspoiled part of uh, the Rockies, that's uh, I highly recommend it. So that's where we're heading.
1: Ooh, I'll probably visit someday when the world is almost back to normal.
0: <laughs> so, sounds, sounds great. We'll give you a tour.
1: <laughs> so today we're going to talk to Dr. Diana Lerner about foreign body ingestions and particularly button battery ingestions. This is a very timely topic as we've all seen rising numbers of ingestions in our centers. And as we all know, button battery ingestions are very dangerous. So we'll talk to Dr. Lerner today about ways to mitigate danger and uh, get some guidance from her around where and when it is best to plan the removal.
0: Diana Lerner is a pediatric gastroenterologist at Children's Wisconsin and an associate professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She has a special interest in endoscopy and in particular advanced endoscopic procedures. And she is the past chair of the endoscopy committee at NASPEGAN. She's co-authored a number of important publications in the area of endoscopy, particularly around management of ingested foreign bodies and highlighting the dangers of button battery ingestions. And so we're very fortunate to have her on the podcast to discuss this topic.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to share this with the audience. So yeah.
0: on to the, the show. show. So, Dr. Lerner, thanks so much for joining us on Bow Sounds.
2: Thanks for having me. So excited to do this.
0: Well, when we uh, start off the podcast, uh, each episode, you know, we know you uh, through interacting with you through an Monasp again, but some of our listeners may not know you. And so we sometimes start off our podcast with what some guests feel is kind of a difficult question, but it's really just to get to know you. Um, how would you describe yourself in one sentence?
2: is probably the hardest question you ask me, you're you going to ask me, so I'm going to give this one a try. I am um, Ukrainian-born, Jewish immigrant, mother of two rambunctious elementary school kids, and a pediatric endoscopy enthusiast, currently practicing at the Medical College of Wisconsin.
0: That is pretty good.
1: That, that, that was great. That's great. How old are your kids? <laughs> Seven and 10. Oh, Wow. 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 That is,
0: <laughs> that is very busy. Mine, mine are eight and six, and or eight and almost six, so I, I totally get it.
1: We're in the same boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we'd like to learn a little bit more about you. Um, is there a book, a podcast, a TV show, a movie that you enjoy uh, that you would recommend to our listeners? So I'm always a, like a few years dated on this because I, I get on the bandwagon
2: of show is like two years after they've come out so
1: <laughs> um, me too. I, I do the same
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm never up to date but I think the one I most recently enjoyed the most is um, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel I, I found oh. that to be really humorous um, taught me a little bit about you know women's positions and women's rights in the 50s uh, which was quite interesting and um, I'm a big fan of animated cartoons probably one of the reasons I'm a pediatrician
1: yeah, <laughs> I I watched the first season of uh Marvelous uh, Mrs. Maisel and it was really really good. I didn't get the chance to watch the other seasons, but the first season was really good. I loved it. My my family and I
2: just saw the Encanto animation. I highly recommend it. It's really fun. Uh
0: haven't gotten there yet, but I think it's inevitable given the ages <laughs> of my children. I think it's going to happen for sure. But but tomorrow the, the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is, sounds like it's right up your alley with with the improv
1: that's true yeah, you sh- you
0: should be all over that <laughs>
1: yeah that's true actually that's true i should uh, watch the other seasons
0: get some pointers
1: <laughs> get some pointers <laughs> is that your hobby uh it's a new hobby for me <laughs> that's awesome that's fantastic yeah as far as
0: a level three you get like a belt right uh level three improv uh, an improvised graduate? belt.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a pretend one. Pretend you just have to imagine belt. that you're wearing a belt. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Takes a lot of courage. Kudos, Tamara. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah.
0: All right. So we should we should get into today's topic, but um, you know, as pediatric gastroenterologists, we all know that kids swallow stuff that they're not supposed to. I know I always tell my kids almost weekly, nothing that is not food goes in your mouth. But uh, not all of our listeners are aware of the scope of the problem. So just to paint a picture, what type of objects do kids commonly swallow that that may bring them into an emergency room uh, or bring them into a consult with one of us? Is it, is, and is it just infants and toddlers?
2: Yeah, no, um, I think people really underestimate how often kids put things in their mouth. Um, and it's most often things you would imagine are around the house, right? So it's going to be your household coins toys, jewelry, magnets, batteries. Um, Most ingestions occur in kids six and under. However, you'd be surprised how many teens we get who were playing with, you know, a few magnets, making tongue rings with them, holding a bottle cap in their mouth as they're kind of trying to open their uh, can of soda or something, and it just gets swallowed. So it's really any age, you know, and the majority of the time, the ingestions are accidental. They, they don't mean to swallow them, unlike in the adult population, where a lot of the ingestions are actually uh, purposeful.
0: Right, and that was one of the more interesting stories out of my fellowship was uh, an 11-year-old kid who had, had a broken arm off of a pair of sunglasses and had tossed it up in the air and then tried to catch it in his mouth and straight shot all the way down. <laughs>
1: That was a good catch. <laughs> yeah. And the wrong place <laughs> <won>. yeah, exactly. <laughs> was a good catch. Mask and one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So as we're talking about um, certain foreign bodies uh, that kids ingest, there's a wide variety, but are there ones that specifically get you worried?
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, so, you know, and this has changed over the recent years, but most most concerning right now are probably button batteries, multiple magnets, especially if the magnets were ingested at different time points. Um, Sharp objects have always been a concern and um, cleaning products that are at the extremes of the pH scale.
0: People should check out the episode from season one uh, to learn about the the history of NASPIANS advocacy uh, team and Brian Rudolph in particular, and and everything that they've done to to try and get rare earth magnets, especially the small the bucky ball type magnets, off the market so that their children can be safer. But uh, you mentioned button batteries being kind of having a a rising importance more recently. And it certainly seems like the incidence of foreign body ingestions overall have changed over time. And certainly, anecdotally, locally, we've seen a significant uptick in button battery ingestions over the course of the pandemic so far. Any thoughts on why that might be?
2: Well, it, it definitely... Anecdotally and, you know, statistically, we are seeing more ingestions. And national data suggests that, you know, rates of all all foreign bodies in children under the age of six has actually increased by 91%, you know, close to 92% within, you know, the years of 95 to 2015. So it's pretty significant um, increase with battery ingestions, you know, accounting for less than 1% of that cohort to now closer to 8%. The concerning thing also is, that, of course, batteries have changed over time. And now that 8%, um, up to 10% of kids who ingest them are hospitalized. So it's, it's really a, a really big problem that I think a lot of people are not aware of. So every year in the United States, more than 3,500 people of all ages swallow button batteries. The majority of these are occurring in children. Unfortunately, today, 254 cases have been severe and 68 fatalities have occurred. These have been reported to the Poison Control Center, and there's probably more that have not been reported. The number of serious injuries or deaths caused by button batteries has increased ninefold in the last decade. Similarly, there's an estimated 14,586 children who went to the emergency room for magnet-related ingestions. This is just from 2010 to 2015. I anticipate that number is higher now. The last few years, like you are mentioning, we've seen that too. And I think what's happening is we've had an unprecedented amount of time of children spending time at home, right? So with the shutdowns and the pandemic. um, There's also been more unmonitored time in kids because parents, oftentimes two working parents, you know, have to have their kids on Zooms while they're on their own Zooms or working outside the home. So you're dealing with a lot of, you know, little kids who are kind of left to their own devices and spending a lot more time on electronic devices as well, right? So we had a lot of remote controls around various devices with batteries, toy Uh, toys that are powered by batteries, um, even things like greeting cards, you know, that maybe you're on the house, you're going to have batteries in them. So we are seeing, you know, kids at home with less supervision. um, And there was an interesting paper from Italy that looked that over the pandemic, they saw a change from children ingesting mostly coins to more batteries Mm -hmm. because of just the nature of where kids are spending most of their time.
0: Yeah. No, that, that totally fits with what we've seen here. I know, you know, pre-pandemic, the the very common call from Emerge about the two-year-old that swallowed a coin was a common, oh, well, you're going, going back into work type call in the evening. And now every time there's a page from the emergency room that says, uh, and they start with, I've got a two-year-old who swallowed my my blood pressure is already rising before they get the rest of the sentence out just until it's, until they get out what it is, um, because we've definitely seen a lot more.
1: So Dr. Larner, why are bun batteries dangerous um, when they're swallowed? I remember practicing in the emergency room um, as a
2: resident and used to have to call my you know, GI attending for consults about kids swallowing AA batteries, for example. And usually they would just kind of You know, clear them as long as they're not in the esophagus, they would just go home. Nobody would worry about them at all. The poison control didn't really care about them very much, and they all really most of them passed without any incident. But what's happened, you know, since the nineteen nineties is the the manufacturing of batteries has changed. So manufacturing batteries got better from the battery perspective. They are higher voltage. They're more stable. Um, and they're smaller. So the majority of the batteries manufactured now are these, what we call lithium cells or button batteries. And, but unfortunately they're circular, you know, the fact that they're circular and that they're bigger, you know, more than let's say 20 millimeters makes them prime size for getting lodged in the esophagus as much, especially of a smaller child, you know, somebody who's under six or specifically under the age of two. And I think that was kind of an unintended consequence of the manufacturing of these more stable, more powerful batteries.
0: And maybe if you don't mind, if I could just kind of tack on to to kind of go through a little more detail. So a lot of people who aren't intimately involved in managing button battery ingestions don't really get, first of all, the sort of the the time factor that's involved, but also just sort of how a button battery causes the damage it causes. Like what is it, you mentioned about the size and things like that, but what is it about the button battery sitting in the esophagus that leads to the damage that we're seeing and the type of damage that we're seeing. Could you paint a picture a little bit about sort of, you know, how quickly damage might arise and and also like what is happening in the esophagus that's causing the damage?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's pretty shocking, actually, how quickly the damage can occur, especially if it's lodged in the esophagus, what happens with this battery, and this was, there's a number of publications that look at this in animal studies, you can actually even, you know, YouTube button battery and cooking a hot dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and You get like a pretty dramatic video showing you how it's working. But what's really happening on a chemical level is the batteries, quote unquote, turn on because the esophageal, um, the saliva and the fact that the two poles are being, con- you know, kind of conducting, right, it turns the battery on. And the battery is unable to generate a sodium hydroxide ion um, at the negative pole of the battery. And that is similar to drinking lye. um, And so that you can imagine how that can cause pretty severe damage. The pH of that reaction is very high, like 13 to 14. And the damage, as you can see in the hot dog video, the damage starts within 15 minutes, but really severe damage can happen as quickly as two hours. So I'd say, you know, we talked about why it causes damage, but, you know, children's esophagus, of course, is smaller. And with the majority of the batteries on the market being sort of these two millimeter or 25 millimeter size batteries, um, there's a number of places, especially at the upper esophageal sphincter right below it um, is where they tend to get stuck uh, and then start to quote unquote cook the esophagus in so many ways, um, causing this really deep ulcerative like Necrosis,
0: basically. That, I think that's really important for, for our listeners to hear just how significant the damage is and how quick that damage is and, and exactly how it's causing the damage. I know uh, I've been asked by other colleagues who misunderstand and they think it's causing damage because the battery breaks and is leaking. It's internal contents and that's what's causing damage or that it's just sort of a local thermal burn from, from the energy or heat generated from the battery. So it's important that they understand that just the, the depth and extent of the injury because of that chemical reaction.
2: Right. You know, and a scary thing that even spent batteries or quote unquote dead batteries, right? Have been shown to do the same because there's always some residual voltage that is left over. So it kind of argues against some of those other things, but it, it can still. So it's very important. We, we talk about this kind of stuff that even spent batteries are discarded in a very safe fashion because they still carry some risk.
1: Yeah, that actually is really important because a lot of people think that, oh, this is an old battery, shouldn't cause any harm, but it really does uh, cause harm. And um, I remember when I was a fellow, a Two-year-old came in and ingested a button battery, and actually it caused a T fistula. And I know that the harm that can happen is that they can also cause a esophageal aorta aorta fistula, and that's very very harmful. Uh, How long can the harm happen? So if you take out the button battery, does that mean that there's no longer injury happening, or can it last longer? No, Tamara, thank you. That's
2: that's really important question. And it's important for people to know that even after the button battery is removed from the esophagus, the damage can continue. Um, and there have been reports from in the poison control database of people having tracheoesophageal fistulas as a delayed presentation, esophageal perforations as a delayed presentation, I mean, even up to, um, you know, over a month later. Um, and unfortunately, a number of the fatalities that have occurred from button battery ingestions are actually delayed and happen a number of days um, to weeks after the battery has been removed. So the instance of suspicion for children symptomatic um, after button battery re- um, removal has to mean we have to keep our guard up really, because these kids are still, they're not really out of the woods, even after we mitigate the risk by removing the battery. Um,
0: this is probably a uh- pretty good segue, but you were one of the authors of the clinical report from the NASPGAN endoscopy Committee in 2015 on the management of ingested foreign bodies. And, and all of our listeners should check that out and we'll post a link in our show notes. Um, but we we don't have time to go obviously into detail about each and every single recommendation, but what would you say are the most important takeaway recommendations in that publication? And maybe you can specifically comment on the differences between the guidance for esophageal versus gastric or small bowel foreign bodies?
2: I think the most important takeaway is that, you know, that we were kind of focusing on the things that are, we current, you know, kind of call the urgent or emergent removals, right? So I think people, you know, as gastroenterologists, and we're not the only ones, of course, that manage foreign bodies. We have our partners in surgery and our partners in ENT, adult and pediatric doctors who, um, who take care of kids. We all need to know what is an emergency. And- Unfortunately, I'm still coming across patients referred to us from um, you know other institutions that maybe see less children day to day that tell parents that you know a button battery in the esophagus can wait 12 hours. and, it, and it's really uh, devastating that, that this is still happening. So I think the biggest takeaway for our listeners is to know what is an emergency, and what can wait and what can't wait. And you know emergencies from, from the article as you will look at it, um, button batteries, Absolutely, an emergency, and in our hospital, we're even considering putting them under kind of a trauma protocol, where the moment they hit the emergency room, there's an anesthesiologist, there's an OR set up, and it's like rapid fire. You know, it doesn't matter if they're NPO, it doesn't matter what's been going on, but they just go straight to the OR for removal, and there's someone available within half an hour. And I, I highly recommend that, you know, some some kind of process like that is set up within um, institutions to allow for that to happen. You don't want to be waiting five to ten hours for them to to go back to, for removal. Um, Of course, esophageal sharp, sharp ingestions, you know, those, those are also pretty dangerous and need to be removed urgently in terms of gastric. um, Oh, and I'm sorry. And of course the, the high uh, potency magnets, if there's multiple of them and you can grab them in the stomach, please do so. (laughs) It's, it's been very complicated, you know, through COVID because of the COVID testing um, that, that was implemented and kind of mitigating the risk of foreign bodies, plus, you know, the risk to the staff and the patient and, um, with the COVID pandemic, it's made everything a little bit more challenging, but, you know, some of these more emergent things, I would say that you just, you know, make sure that your team is safe with um, proper PPE available in the negative pressure room, if you have it, and just say come back um, and do the right thing. But in terms of button, gastric button batteries, that's really debatable. And and we honestly, writing that manuscript, we had a lot of discussion about it. That was not an easy one and, and not everybody agreed. And so we sort of, you know, the language in there is is purposefully vague. And, you know, we didn't say this is a guideline. We didn't say this is what you need to do. We just kind of said, you know, consider consider these factors when you're evaluating a kid. And it really needs to be a kid by kid discussion. But when we were writing it, the things we focused on are two things. The majority of kids who had major complications from button batteries, including, you know, severe issues like tracheosophageal Fistulas and, and the aortic perforations and things like that. It was the, the the battery was lodged in the esophagus for some time. Now, when we see the kids in our emergency room and the kid and the battery's in the stomach, we don't know how long that battery was in the esophagus, unless it was a known ingestion. Um, and we're seeing them pretty shortly after it, and it's already in the stomach. So if we really don't know how long the ingestion was, or if it's a prolonged ingestion. Like we talked about, the damage in the esophagus could have already occurred, and just because the battery in the, is in the stomach doesn't decrease that risk um, as the reaction continues, even despite the battery being moved. So that was most of what we were thinking about, is we, we want the endoscopist to know the risk um, and the damage to the esophagus. So if you have a high-risk child, somebody who's under the age of five, if you have a larger battery, you know, somebody, something over two centimeters, um, the risk of impaction is higher. Unknown time of ingestion, um, of course, symptoms, any symptoms, really, those would be the reasons to to take the batteries out. But this was debatable.
0: For, for sure, and and we've definitely had more discussions locally, and I, I think that is uh, the important sort of crux of the decision point is how sure are you that that button battery uh, in that child spent no time in the esophagus whatsoever. And if you're really able to have that with certainty, because you have a very reliable historian, for sure, the time from ingestion to first x-ray is half an hour and it's sitting in there in the stomach, then maybe you can feel relaxed. Whereas if it's, I don't know, sometime this morning, we think the battery was ingested and maybe she coughed a little bit for a while, but, you know, she's fine now. Maybe that's the one that you want to have that look uh, to, to see what's going on for sure. That makes sense.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's where we need the clinician judgment, right? Because every child is so different, but like but, but it's, it's exactly what you said. The risk lies within the unknown.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and- kind
1: of weighing the risks and benefits and looking at really, uh, is it very risky to put the patient under anesthesia and take out the button battery and look into their esophagus or uh, is it more beneficial just to look into the esophagus and make sure everything's okay?
2: Right. And also it's your access, right? Do you have easy yeah. access to endoscopy? Do you have pediatric anesthesia? Do you, you know, is a child local as a child from far away, right? So like if you're sending a kid away from who's going to be three hours up North with no access to easy healthcare, if something were to happen, I mean, you have to kind of weigh all of these risks and
1: benefits. And this is kind of a, Another question that just uh, came up right now in my mind. So if you go in, the button batteries in the stomach, you go in, you take a look at the esophagus and it looks normal or you see a little bit of irritation in the esophagus. Do you uh, keep them overnight and watch them? Do you um, just assume that the button battery just went immediately to the stomach how would you approach that if you just go in and you see the esophagus is just, looks either normal or just minor irritation and uh, the button batteries in the stomach? I think I
2: would be pretty reassured by that. I think if the if the esophagus is for the most part normal, of course, you'll grab the battery because you're already there. So just take it out. But I'd say that's the kind of kid that you do a PO trial, make sure they do great for you. And they think you can let them go home. And that's one of the benefits of doing the endoscopy, right? Is that you have the peace of mind. So I don't think in that case, a hospitalization is necessary.
0: Sure. And maybe just to round out that discussion about, you know, the gastric and small bowel foreign bodies, we talked about magnets, we've we've talked about button batteries, which are obviously a major focus for this episode, just given the the risks involved. But what are some of the other, you know, size or shape or type parameters that might uh, lead a gastroenterologist to to go in after a, a gastric foreign body?
2: Definitely things that may not pass. Right, so we know that in kids under the age of two, things that are larger, so usually the cutoff is about two two centimeters. I mean, so unfortunately, the your quarters are going to be a little bit bigger than that, and um, so things that are are like are unlikely to pass um, in the younger kid or or a large, really large, long, weird shaped objects so like a toothbrush. You know, <laughs> it's going to be something like. Surprisingly, I've seen these crazy things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so something over longer than six centimeters is going to have a hard time navigating some of the turns within the small bowel, and of course, the TI is likely to get embedded. And then, you know, if they're a younger kid, two and under, those are the kids that you're going to be worried about things not passing. Not necessarily an emergency, but of course, this, the sooner you take these things out, the more chances are you finding them in the stomach rather than having to hunt them down somewhere else. Like at the TI, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. So I'd say I'd say if if you think the risk of the object not being able to pass would be a good reason to take it out.
0: Okay, I think that's I think that's uh, just kind of good general advice or or information for for people to understand, especially people um, who work in the emergency room, pediatric residents who are rotating through emergency room, knowing that yeah, probably that isn't going to go or to at least right. have the conversation with their friendly neighborhood gastroenterologist. Right, um, But
2: on the same hand, if the kid is older, I think there's a lot of misconception about coins as well, because coins are so common, you know, commonly ingested. If the kid's a little older and the coin is in the stomach, you know, esophageal coins, of course you want to remove, you know, within 24 hours, but if the coin's in the stomach, you can watch it for a while. Right. Cause that that's very unlikely to cause um, major damage The exception, actually, interestingly, the exception being um, a penny that's made after um, 1982. And that's something that we didn't discuss in the article. And I came across the hard way by having a patient who ended up having um, zinc toxicity. So so these pennies um, used to be made out of a different material, different metal material, and have been transitioned to zinc. Uh, And that actually starts to be digested in the stomach from the gastric acid. Um, and so what you'll see, interestingly, in these x-rays, what you'll see is kind of a moth-eaten coin. It'll start off as a coin um, and then will look like it's really being degenerated. So it's interesting. When you take these up, they're actually broken apart. Like we can see the metal is being digested. And the child we saw was having a lot of symptoms like abdominal pain bone pain their white cell count went up um, and the zinc level was elevated. So, so think about, think about pennies, perhaps, especially the kids having a lot of symptoms. Those are the ones I'd probably be more careful with now, just because more of them are, at least in the U S more of them are in circulation, Um, but the rest of the coins generally can wait.
0: Okay. And what's the uh, rough timeline for the, the zinc pennies to break down? Are we talking about like within that day or
2: within like within the first few days, they start to be digested.
0: Okay. Okay. Important tip.
2: Yes. Yes. And it's, uh, I think something, you know, all of our writers of the future guidelines should consider including this in the, in the next reiteration.
0: Okay. Note to everyone on the endoscopy committee out there. You can, I'm sure you can pass that along <laughs> yes, for future yes. guideline versions.
1: So moth looking penny on x-ray. That's kind of what we were looking for in the stomach. Oh yes that's really interesting important to know um so there are some recent publication or a recent publication that uh, came out from espigan about button battery ingestions and we're gonna put a link in our show notes for that can you tell us a highlight of what that paper had recommendations about the uh, button battery ingestions what new information it had and what it- what are the variation in practice
2: yes yeah, so i think that the, the- the biggest difference in the, in the Aspagan paper, which is I, again, highly recommend that our readers check out, um, our listeners check out, they talk about leaving the gastric batteries in for a little bit longer, right? And again, we talked about how this is very debatable. So um, they don't advocate for removal within the first two to four days. Um, they give it seven to, you know, potentially seven to 14 days to sit in the stomach uh, if the battery was in the child for less than 12 hours. So I think if the battery was impacted for more than 12 hours, if it's unknown, again, they have the same same concern that, you know, you have to go in there anyway because you have to evaluate the esophagus, right? So it's a little bit more lenient in terms of the gastric button batteries. They also recommend being a little bit more liberal with CT scans of the chest. So um, kind of getting the lay of the land before you even go in because of the concern that removing the battery could be problematic. Uh, if the battery is lodged or has already created a damage or created a fistula between, let's say, the vascular structure and the esophagus, that you want to have the right team in the room, right? Um, So they're considering evaluation with CT scan potentially before removal. Um, This is a deviation because, you know, in our our guidelines, we talked about removal as soon as possible. So I think, you know, in my mind that it all makes sense. However, I, I worry a little bit about the delay that might cost if, if, you again, if you have a protocol by which, you know, they're in the CT scanner within minutes and then they're on the OR table within next, you know, few minutes after that, then that all seems like a really reasonable approach. But I think the important thing to consider is that you have to have the right people in the room, right? So you have to have, you know, the OR set up, not sort of some, you know, far remote um, day surgery kind of facility where you don't have backup if you need it. Um, you want to have your staff at least in-house. If not in the room, and I think that's what they're getting at is you have you have to know what you're getting into and understand that it could be potentially more than what you bargained for when you take that battery out.
1: Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that know what resources you have yes. and make sure that you take it out as soon as you can, emergently and safely. So have everybody that needs to be there to be in the OR yeah.
2: um, or at you least can- be available you know, on standby, like they know that you're going back, that you have these concerns and that they're at least free, right. To get, to, to get to you as quickly as possible if they're needed. But interestingly, you know, there was a recent article, by um, Calaf et al. That looked at 68 patients with gastric button batteries, and they actually looked at gastric damage specifically, not esophageal damage, because we also have to think about what is the button battery doing to the stomach. And they found that if the battery was not removed within 12 hours, you were significantly more likely to see like 4.5 times more likely to see gastric damage, so some sort of erosion, ulcer of some kind. And one child out of these 68 had a gastric perforation. Mm-hmm. So you know, just in the back of your mind, always consider. And again, risks and benefits need to be weighed, you know, risk of sedation, risk of endoscopy with a kind of a lower chance, but possible chance of gastric ulceration and or perforation.
1: Yeah, I've noticed that. I've went in a couple of times to take out gastric button batteries and I've noticed that the damage started and there was a lot of irritation, small ulcers from where the battery kind of moves around. And that, I guess that brings the question is it probably doesn't need a narrow lumen like the esophagus to cause damage, it can also cause damage in a bigger area like the stomach.
2: Right. I think as long as you have what we talked about, as long as you have the right milieu um, to turn the battery on, right, and and create that hydroxide reaction, if it's stuck between the few pyrrhugi of the esophagus or within the pylorus, you're going to have that same problem happening. So I think where it gets down to is if a patient is symptomatic in any way. Right, I think you err on the yeah. side of just taking it out, and if they're they're doing awesome, and all the other parameters are low risk. Then you you possibly could leave it, I based on the you know and guidelines. But interestingly, if you look at their recently published reviews from emergency rooms and other other facilities, it seems like most people still go for removing them. You know, probably within that first few few days.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think people have been maybe appropriately taught to be very respectful of the potential for injury and to, right. to err on the side of caution uh, when when they're able to.
2: You, you- Potentially, we'll see that change with these new guidelines. But you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few years.
0: For sure. Uh, and maybe just to round out that you mentioned before about, you know, making sure that you have the right people in the room or at least available on standby. So besides your staff, um, your, uh, you know, your OR team, your anesthesia colleagues, who else may you want to have access to in the case of an esophageal button battery?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I think we need to think about what might happen, right? So the the, the biggest concerns, as we've mentioned so far, is that you have the battery either facing anteriorly, in which case you're worried about tracheal damage, right? Or I'm, I'm not the battery, but the but the negative pole facing anteriorly, or it's facing posteriorly, in which case you're worried about a vascular structure damage, right? So the people that would be helpful in those two scenarios would be your friendly ENT to so take a look at um, at the trachea, and make sure there's no damage there, um, if you're concerned, and there's significant damage on the esophageal side of things, or if there's erosion into the posterior side or you see a lot of damage at the time of removal, you may want your CT surgeon or your general surgeon around. Because that's the case where if you pull that battery in it, let's say, let's say it's embedded to the point where you're really you're trying to remove it and can't, that's probably not the kind of battery you want to like tug at. That's the situation where you want to make sure you have either a cardiac cath lab available or um, your CT surgery team available on standby before you pull that battery out or at least have a discussion with
0: yeah and and that's an important point depending on where you live and the resources you have available to you and what centers are around for uh receiving a child with a button battery i know locally Mm -hmm. our center uh, is the cardiac surgery center in our area and so that has determined where for some children where they end up in from a more remote location. So they'll actually bypass a closer children's hospital to come here because of concern about the need for, for cardiothoracic surgery, needing to be involved and needing to have access to that service. So I think that's an important point.
2: Yeah. And I think in this situation, I, I would advocate for, for kids getting to the right place as quickly as possible, right? Because they, you know, this isn't a kid that you're going to go by self-car,
1: you know, for a four hour trip. Um, <laughs> um. this is kind of like the airlift situation. For right, sure. right. And we joke about it, but it happens. It actually happens that some ER sends the patients to a tertiary center by car, not knowing kind of the risks of a button battery uh, ingestion. So that's why we're having this podcast. So a lot of people can listen to it and know the importance of a button battery. So uh, there are some new recommendations about giving honey to children who've ingested a button battery, to avoid the damage. I guess the hesitation with that is: Do you want to fill their stomach with honey? Can you talk a little bit about that recommendation? Uh, should we give honey? Should we not give honey? When do we do it? And who should be doing it?
2: Yeah, and and this this is truly remarkable the way this happened. And I have to say that I I was amazed to see a benchside project published in you know a journal. And the poison control recommendations change within the same week. And I really hope that medicine can continue to really respond to information this way. Because we know there's often a really long delay between something that the basic scientists are aware of and and the general physicians are available. So this was, this was truly great. Um, And what they did to figure out this honey um, versus caraphate question and and the new recommendations are based on piglet experiments that Jatana and Anfang did a few years ago. And this is a really brilliant, simple experiment where they took piglets, they embedded an esophageal button battery in their esophagus, and they tried a variety of various acidic substances that they instilled into the esophagus, including cola, lemon juice, orange juice, um, honey, and caraphate were some of those in their subsequent experiments. And what they found was after sacrificing the piglets, they saw that specifically honey and caraphate almost completely protected the esophagus from ash formation um, or from, from burn, even, even the deeper burns. You know, that's how we actually know that the battery continues to burn the esophagus after removal because they the, what they saw in the initial exam was so much more superficial than what they saw after they sacrificed the animal. So that's where those recommendations come from. It's not you know, clinical clinical data. It's really the animal experiments that, that have taught us this. But yeah, I, I, I think there's very minimal risk, right? We still need to verify this in clinical trials to see. We're not going to randomize people to honey or no honey, because I think that seems really unethical. But we do need to see that you know maybe from historical data to now that this is effective in clinical practice. But for the time being, I see very little downside. To trying to basically turn the battery off in the esophagus by by coating it with one of these substances, and then, you know the recommendations, I highly recommend people go to the poison control center. They have a great algorithm on there. Um, we have one in our publication in JPGN as well. But the idea is that you're if you're over the age of 12 months, the parent um, can be instructed to start honey right away. They, we don't want them going to the store to go buy honey, <laughs> but if they happen to have it on on hand at the time, then they can go ahead and give it right away. Uh, while they're in route to the emergency, to their closest emergency room. And if they're in the medical facility, then of course we want to give care of because we have it available to protect the esophagus as much as possible prior to removal. But neither of these interventions should delay removal of the battery.
0: Okay, that's, that's really great. And I remember mm-hmm. um, the kind of the evolution of the message about honey kind of coming out. And for a little while, there was a distinction being made between Manuka honey and other types of honey, because Manuka honey, apparently I learned this because I didn't even know what Manuka honey was, was even uh, lower pH than many other kinds of honey. But I think if I'm right, Dr. Lerner, any honey that you have on your pantry shelf or cupboard shelf is just fine. If you have access to it, use it. It doesn't, don't go to the store, like you said, to buy special Manuka honey.
2: Yes, yes, if your if your baby or child is is over the age of 12 months and you're not worried about you know botulism but then definitely safe to give honey whatever honey you have at home um while you're quickly gathering your things up to go to the emergency room.
1: And is there a specific amount that is recommended to be given, or do you just give a tablespoon or, and also for care fate?
2: Yeah. So the, so the study is looked at 10 mLs. So like, that's where our recommendations come from. It's 10 mLs every 10 minutes, if your child is over 12 months. Um, and I think you can give it up to six times. I don't know where the six times came from. I don't, I'm not sure <laughs> how that recommendation came, but I think The idea is that you just, you, you get to where you need
0: to go. I was going to say it's probably, it's probably just a time interval. By the time you're on that fifth dose, you should probably be in the hospital. You should be someplace
1: else. (laughs) (laughs) And these these patients are going to be intubated anyway. So I know some people say, well, the stomach should be empty, but. These patients are going to be intubated anyway, so the risk of aspiration. Correct. Is this is a this long. is a
2: rapid sequence intubation scenario, and there's a number of publications in anesthesia literature. So, um, you know, our pediatric anesthesia are very familiar with it. If you're in a place that does this much less frequently, I recommend that your anesthesiologist familiarize themselves with the literature because we we don't want to wait for a proper NPO time on this. So the little bit of honey in the esophagus is not going to change much of your risk-benefit ratio here for intubation because you're not even going to be waiting until they're MPO appropriate.
0: For sure. Now you you recently published an article last year on this topic and we'll, we'll again we'll we'll share a link in our show notes but you've just talked about risk mitigation measures that can be taken before removing the button battery so either at home or in hospital depending on on when when the opportunity arises but also there's a little bit of evidence around risk mitigation measures that you can take even after the button battery has been removed can you talk a little bit more about those
2: yes so As we talked about, you know, the the basic science of things is that there is a hydroxide reaction taking place at the site of the injury, and that continues to burn the esophagus over time. So in an idea to halt that reaction, Jatana also studied irrigation of the piglet esophagus with acetic acid. And the recommendation was 50 to 150 ml of 0.25%, and this is sterile um, acetic acid, to be irrigated if the esophagus is not visually perforated, right? So if you could tell that there's not a clear leak or clear perforation, you don't want to be irrigating the mediastinum with this, but if you can irrigate the esophagus um, and then suction the debris back out, the idea is that you could maybe hold the reaction further, limiting the ongoing damage that is occurring in the tissues.
1: And that's um, during the endoscopy. Is that correct? While you're doing the endoscopy.
2: This is after
1: battery removal.
2: Mm-hmm. So you hopefully can remove the battery safely. You identify the area um, of the negative pole. And that's where you really want to make sure that you document that in your operative notes, because that's very important for the type of risk factors that are the child is at um, risk for in the following you know month or so. Um, and then you irrigate the esophagus with acetic acid to prevent further damage. You want to be really careful that you don't try to push the battery through the esophagus. That's not safe. Um, I highly recommend that if you don't have the capabilities to remove it, that you call for backup or help, you know, with you're either doing it through a rigid endoscopy, like with ENT or general surgery or somebody else who might be able to help you because um, you know, people have done that with coins, for example, but I don't, I don't recommend that because you could make the damage worse. Yeah. And so it was, <laughs> funny story when this first came out. And, and you know, I was kind of, I was doing an endoscopy in another room and someone was telling me, oh, the ENT next door is taking out a button battery. And I said, oh, are they going to irrigate with acetic acid? And they're like, no, they're not. And I said, well, we have to, we have to irrigate with acetic acid. It's so important. Um, And of course our hospital didn't have acetic acid on site because no one had ever heard of it yet. And the way they got around is they went to the cafeteria and got vinegar. <laughs> and so, They use food grade vinegar to to irrigate the the esophagus with, which was similar, similar pH and and that worked well. But of course, now we stock (laughs) sterile acetic acid in our ore, which, which I highly recommend that you look through your ore capabilities to deliver this acetic acid to you. Otherwise you're going to be sending people to your cafeteria
1: (laughs) for vinegar. That's a creative way.
0: Sounds like a sounds like a really good plan to do what you can to reduce the risks, given how bad the injuries can be. So, you know, as pediatric neurologists, we're we're pediatricians too, and and others uh, in our audience who, who care about children. Obviously, prevention is far better than any intervention endoscopy honey uh, vinegar anything that we can do to to treat these ingestions that we've been discussing so what should we be telling our patients our families about ingestible foreign bodies in general and button batteries and rare earth magnets specifically and maybe you can comment a little bit on what role advocacy plays in preventing injuries and deaths from ingested foreign bodies
2: um yeah it's it's interesting to me how frequently i see my own kids come home with a project where, you know, the bottom of the project is powered by a large button battery that they came home with from either innovation lab at school or Sunday school. And I'm just like, ah, stop. (laughs) I'm getting on the phone with the teachers and saying these kids, you know, please, please, please don't send them home with these, completely available button batteries, I beg of you. So then I have them call all the parents that got the device, <laughs> and warn them to take it away and throw it away right away. So I think what what I think what this tells us is that people just don't know, you know, we just, people don't know the risks because they're ubiquitous and they're everywhere. Um, and so part of our job is to educate and the general pediatricians, of course, is to educate about the risks and the proper storage of these devices. They are not toys. Um, you know, kids of any age can swallow them. It can be really dire consequences. So I'd say, you know, when you're when you're home with your children, if our listeners can make sure that they're keeping all of their batteries um, really safely stored, and even the ones that are spent, that you're putting them in some sort of protective coating and throwing them out, disposing of them properly. If you have, you know, remote controls that if they fall down, the battery compartment opens and things fall out of it. Please use some sort of secure tape that if a child were to drop it, um, they're not going to have access to that button battery. Things like LED lights have a lot of batteries in them that sometimes will, will be easily accessible to young children, greeting cards, it's a, hearing aids, I mean, really toys, make sure that your toy compartments are accessible only by a screwdriver, right? Those are like the child safety measures that we can talk about. But I think, um, you, you know, the important thing is that we do, have, we do have a lot of advocacy around this. And I want to mention the combination of uh, societies that have worked really hard uh, with advocacy within pediatrics, and that's the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the American Bronco Esophological Association um, who created the National Button Battery Task Force. And they did this in 2012 when we started realizing the dangers that these devices were holding. And the task force involves pediatric ENT, GI, surgery, radiology, anesthesia, ER, um, U.S. Consumer and Product Safety Commission, and numerous industry representatives. And this is really all the people need to be at the table to help us solve this problem. They've done amazing work already. And I was just looking at their meeting notes from the past few years. So they've done some great work. I just want to mention a few of those things to you guys today. They designed um, a new website link on the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, website, specifically designated to button batteries to help parents know what to do. And it's on aap.org. So I highly recommend It's a really great website. Check it out. The industry partners are working to mitigate risks by changing the way they make the button batteries. So for example, Duracell's new coins are now bitter. They have a bitter coating. So if a child were to put that in their mouth, hopefully they'll be, you know, disgusted and spit it out. Um, And other industry leaders are working on technology to mitigate the risks by including um, ways to deactivate the battery if it touches saliva. So there's really great work coming, including some advocacy towards, you know, putting some pretty significant language around the warning, the warnings on the toys that come with or products that have button batteries in them. So, I think lots and lots of work, but we can all do our part by education.
1: It's very nice to kind of hear how advocacy help a lot with kind of rule management and being creative of coming up with things where we can protect the kids. So that's interesting where you can deactivate the fun battery with saliva and make it bitter so the kids don't swallow it and they spit it out. That's very interesting and amazing.
2: I want to introduce our readers to a way that they can help with data collection to make sure that we know we're um, able to to study this real time. And there's a new app that's called GIRC, or Global Injury Research Collaborative, um, that was founded to empower medical professionals with the tools to anonymously report relevant details of injuries that occurred to our patients. So I recommend that you download this app. It's really pretty simple to use. In our hospital, it's the fellows that mostly do this after you know they take care of an ingestion of some kind, specifically button batteries. And this allows us to to really understand the depth and the breadth of this concern.
0: That's great, and w- we can include a link to download that up in our show notes.
1: So this was very informative. We really enjoyed having you on this podcast. Looking back at your career, what has been the most valuable advice that you received, and what advice do you have for our listeners?
2: So interesting. During my fellowship, I was taught not to say no to anything, you No, know, to, to take everything at heart on and just really go for it. And I think that was great advice. I had an opportunity to work in the lab, write book chapters, get involved with NASP again and produce animated cartoons about pediatric GI disorders, which was a super fun part of my um, fellowship project and shameless uh, advertising to check out moviegi.com for those completely free to everyone videos for your patients to enjoy and, and And listen and watch. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And so it gave me the foundation to figure out what drove me, right? And what, what I was passionate about. And after starting to feel somewhat overwhelmed with all the amazing, great projects on my plate, I was given further advice that I don't have to do all of it. And I think that's also important. So I would say there's truth to both. You know, early on, definitely check out what drives you, what you're passionate about, what you're interested in. Try not to say no to too many things. But then when you get to a place where you kind of know what that is, settle into what you like. And, you know, it's okay to say no sometimes. So I hope people can find that balance. I'm still working on that part. But I think I hope people can find that balance and really, really um, do the things that they find most exciting and meaningful in their career.
1: That's a that's great advice. I find myself saying yes and getting excited uh, about a lot of projects and saying yes immediately. And I kind of learned to wait to say yes and think about it before I say yes and give it a couple of days and then say, okay, I can't do this. No, I'd like to do it, but no, I can't do this.
0: No, I, I, that's
2: going back to those rambunctious uh, children at home, right? That <laughs> it's always a balance of where you, what are you going to spend your time on?
0: Yeah, I agree. And it's definitely common advice we've heard on this podcast. And I think it's really important to, to hear it again. We all need to keep hearing it again and apply it to our own careers. I know we had uh, Benita Kamath on the podcast uh, a while back, and she recommended sort of defining for yourself what who you are, who you see yourself as as in your career, and put it up on a board in your various roles. And when somebody comes to you with a new project, a new committee, a new task, Hold it up against what you've written down on the board and say where would this fit, and if the answer is nowhere, then that tells you it's time to say no. So. But that
2: tells you that tells you about how many amazing things our our community is doing, right? And it's it's absolutely. really absolutely. It's really fun to be, you know, part of NASPA and part of the pediatric GI community. And it's probably what kind of drove me, you know, my uh, teaching in tomorrow session, which I highly recommend to our listeners if they're thinking about PGI. Hopefully after COVID is all done and good with, we'll get back to our meetings, um, you know, watching people do the funky chicken (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) or doing Zumba lessons or, you know, rap on stage. I think it just tells you how exciting our little community is and how many amazing things we want to do for our children that we take care of. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely, I'm constantly blown away by by everything that uh, that our peers are doing, including including you, Dr. Lerner. So thank you again for being on the podcast. Any final words for our listeners?
2: I just want to thank everybody for tuning in, and I want to wish everyone a happy new year. Hopefully, with um, lots more travel, family time, you know, safety from COVID, um, and trying to get back to normal life as much as possible. And thank you for having me.
0: Thank you again. Thank you
1: for being on this podcast. We enjoyed having you.
0: Well, that was really great to have a chance to sit down with Dr. Lerner to talk about uh, the really important topic of uh, foreign body and particularly battery ingestions. Um, I know I learned a lot about ways to maybe reduce the danger with these ingestions and things that people can do in the community and uh, ways to uh, educate our peers about uh, the, the importance of these ingestions and, and the need for uh, really rapid intervention
1: yeah that was a great episode and if you don't already be sure to follow us on twitter and instagram at at bow sounds and on facebook at, at pediatric gi podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes and if you liked our episode and would like to support us maybe you can do one or all of these things tell one person about the podcast leave a, an excellent review on Apple podcast and uh so people can discover our podcast. And on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support us by making a donation to the Naspagan Foundation. Uh, the menu you donate helps support some of the amazing things that the naspagan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public educational programs.
0: As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field.
1: Thank you all for listening.
0: Until next time, everybody. Bye for now. Bye.